All right. Well, good morning, Salem. How are we doing this morning? It's a windy day. I'm glad you guys are here. I woke up this morning and I heard the howling. I thought, holy cow, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a cold one for me today. And sure enough, that wind cuts through about any coat. So I'm glad that we're here uh, this morning. Uh, I want to welcome you guys. Uh, add my welcome. I'm Seth, one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. And uh, if you're joining us online, uh, we're glad that you're here or wherever you're at. We're so glad that you guys are joining us. Uh, you guys may know uh, from past stories at some point that, uh, that I was born and raised a uh, Cornhusker fan. Uh, so I bleed red. There's a, cute, a couple of woohoos I know. I watched the game yesterday. Um, so the unfortunate thing about being a Cornhusker fan is that uh, we're terrible. Um, and <laughs> the, why is there clapping? Yeah, great, uh, yeah, great. Um, so, um, but I am an NSU fan, so I will always cheer. So I just want you guys to know that we all, all in this room love Jesus uh, together. So, um, but at the same time, so uh, what's unfortunate about uh, the, the Cornhuskers is that we're terrible. And yesterday uh, marked the one, the one time a year where my wife and I are in direct opposition to each other uh, because she is a Wisconsin Badger fan. Um, and so they play once a year. And I don't think we've won since 2012. So... Every year, I'm thankful for the gospel <laughs> uh, in, in our marriage that she treats me well <laughs> uh, when we lose terribly bad. But as we were watching the game, uh, I kept seeing uh, commercials for this boxing match. And, and it reminded me of a story I know very little to nothing, basically, about boxing. Uh, but apparently, it's kind of coming back into the scene. And so uh, it reminded me of the story when I think I was either a junior or senior in college. I don't, I don't remember uh, which. Um, but uh, I was living off campus, and uh, my roommates and I, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I don't think fun is the right word, but maybe entertaining might be the right word, decided that we would have uh, a, just, a, just a gentle sparring match um, with boxing gloves and the full, full uh, face helmet. So it's supposed to be you know, something very light. It's not, you know, nobody should get hurt kind of a thing. And so it's just supposed to be little jabs and, and so there's no anger or anything like that. And so, but I got partnered uh, with this guy named Caleb and Caleb was about 6'4 um, and had about six or seven inches on me. And so I learned very quickly uh, the physics and the geometry of boxing and why it's good to have long arms. Uh, and so here we, I, I get, we all get all paired up and we enter into this and so I put up my gloves and we start doing this little thing and kind of around the little like this this rundown living room you know just you know this kind of, I'm sure it was probably humorous this is before they had YouTube and things like that so um but here I go and then he, he sends one at me and I block it and I block a couple and I think oh good you know I've, I've successfully done my job and then I kind of do this and I'm ready to to kind of throw my own little jab and in comes this glove like right into my face and I just I just remember like just going oh no you know and here here it comes and it goes crunch and I, and I hear it, and I'm like, whoa, time out, something's wrong, like, time, time out, whatever, the technical foul. <laughs> um, back away, and, and I, I'm like, oh, something's wrong, and I do this, and, and my end just, just pours, and it's just like, it fills up the gloves, it starts coming out, and it's just, it's just the bloodiest mess I've ever seen. I went to the doctor later, and the guy said, yeah, your nose is in fragments. 
Um, he goes, yeah, if you would have gotten hit one more time, it could have shoved something back or something, and, and it was cracked all the way into the occipital bone and all the way down here. Uh, and so I went to school, you know, back to the university class the next day with these massive black eyes, and everybody thought I was the, the goofiest kid, you know, like rascal, the, you know, the, the weird little animal, stuffed animal that has the black eyes or something. And, and, uh, and so every time I'd cough, though, you'd hear this, this vibration, you know, yeah, for, for like 10 weeks, and you know something's wrong, you know? Um, we're in this series, <laughs> let's transition, um, we're in this series called Rooted, Grounded in Love, and it's out of the letter uh, from Paul uh, to the people at Ephesus, it's called uh, Ephesians, uh, and, and the reason why I share that story is because um, if you've been following with us, so if you're for the first time, uh, the book is broken in, into two parts, and really the first part is chapters one through three, and that's God's story. It's this high theology about who he is and what he's done for us. And so all this, these incredible gospel story implications for our lives. Uh, and then chapters four through six is, okay, so where does the rubber meet the road? Like, how do you actually do life in light of these things that are true uh, about yourself? And in the second portion uh, of the book, uh, it's all through today, um, not next week, but through today, it's all under the, the, the guide of this one big idea phrase where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so it's in light of when the light is what's true about who you are in Christ, how do you live out your life in a way that it's weighty in this world, right? It's a manner worthy of, of the gospel. And so he started in chapter four with this idea, uh, this beautiful picture of the church. And you're like, man, this is incredible. Who wouldn't want to be a part of the church? And then last week came. <laughs> And it's let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, take off the old shirt, put on the new shirt. And it kind of feels like Paul threw a right hook this last week. And today, he's going to follow it up with a left hook. And it's hard. And some of these things are just painful. And, you know, we want to keep it, you know... Um, encouraging and joy in this room in light of who Christ is, but there are some painful things that we have to deal with when it comes to the gospel. Uh, and so sometimes I feel like as Christians, we can keep our, our gloves up like when we're approaching scripture. Uh, and sometimes this is our defensive posture, right? Because we don't, we don't want necessarily for the gospel to hit hard. And so we can successfully block one. And we're like, phew, I kind of made it through that week. You know, that was some hard stuff, but it didn't really hurt me that bad. But all of a sudden it's like, whoop, here comes the left hook, you know? And he gets us kind of right in the heart. And so this morning, um, you know, whatever it is, it may not relate to everybody, uh, but this is where we're at in the text. And so I hope that you can, you can get something uh, from this text. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 uh, through uh, 21, okay? Here's where it starts. It starts positive, by the way. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, right? Uh, imitators of God. I love this because it takes us all the way back to, if you guys know me, I'm big on the, the whole story, right? So you go back to Genesis, we find that we are created in the image of God. We got to connect all these pieces together. And so being created in the image of God, right? We are not self-sufficient. We are designed to reflect or to imitate who? God, right? This is who we're designed in his image to, uh, to imitate. And when the fall happens, as sinners enters into the world, right, everything gets flipped. And so we go from selfless to selfish. And, and everything that I do really gets filtered through me and myself and I and my own love for me. And so, uh, but I cannot remove that from the fact that I'm actually hardwired to imitate because that's who we're made to be. 
And so we can imitate God, and we can imitate really, really good things and positive things, but we can also imitate really bad things and bad people, right, and, and bad patterns in our life, right? It's, it's just true, right? So when I think about imitating and being hardwired to imitate, uh, this is some fun, some fun things as I was thinking uh, about this the other day. I was reminded of when Eden, I think, you know, just turned like, like one and a half or something, and we were in Target or Walmart, and, and, uh, and, and we were walking, and the music stopped. And so she, she looked up, she goes, Hey, Google, play music. And I was like, what? I, didn't, I looked at my wife. I was like, did you teach her that? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't teach her that. That's sweetie. That's not how this works. You know? Um, and there's this idea, though. You go, we didn't teach her that, but, sh- but we did. We did teach her that because she's imitating. So when we're at home, hey, Google, play music, right? And so she learned that. Uh, she likes to put on daddy's shoes and walk around and say, walk like dada, you know, and do those things. Last night, um, we have a husky, uh, and so last night, Eden was having a hard time falling asleep, and I heard her uh, howling herself to sleep. <laughs> so she goes, so she's like in the room next to us. She's like, oh, oh. <laughs> like, I was like, what in the world, right? And they imitate, they imitate, right? We're hardwired to imitate over and over and over. Right? This is something that we cannot escape from. We can imitate good things and we can imitate uh, bad things. And what I love about this passage is he says that we are, we are designed to imitate God, right? As beloved children, right? And so you start to think about this idea of children. How, do, how are we children in, in God's family? You go back to chapter one and we find that we're actually adopted into God's family, right? And this is how we become as Gentiles, a part of God's family, we're actually adopted into his family. And so this whole story about Eden, who my own daughter is adopted, and I myself am adopted, it makes so much more sense because when I think about Eden, Eden doesn't share any of the same DNA that my wife and I have. And yet as she enters into our family, she still can imitate because we're hardwired to imitate, whether adopted or biological, right? We are designed to imitate who? We're designed to imitate God. Well, God is invisible. So how do we do that? Can we imitate God in his uh, all knowledge? No. Why? Because we don't have all knowledge, right? Can I, uh, can I imitate him with, intent, like, with uh, discernment and wisdom? Absolutely. Can I imitate God in his all power? Nope. Can't do that either, right? Can't do that because I don't have it. But can I imitate God in, in my creativity uh, in living a life with intentionality? Absolutely, I can, right? And so here's what's interesting is that we look at God and we go, gosh, like why is this is the only time in scripture that we're actually called to imitate God in this way, right? In fact, usually it's of Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, we were called to imitate God, but I want you to know that the fullest realization of that, because God is, is, is invisible, the fullest realization of that is actually to imitate who? Christ, because Christ is the image of the invisible. So Christ walked the face of the earth. We could see him. We could touch him. We could hear him. We could follow him to the right and to the left. We could sit and eat with him. All of these types of things, right? And we're called to imitate Jesus, not just in what he believed, but also in his very life. His very lifestyle is what we are called uh, to imitate. I love... um, we talked about this last week, um, if you're with us, 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, where Paul says, I urge you, I want you to imitate me, right? And he's talking about me as I imitate Christ. I urge you to imitate me. But then what he says is he says, and this is actually why I sent 
Timothy to you. So he's talking to the Corinthians. I sent Timothy, who is my beloved child, I sent him to you, Corinthians, so that Timothy could remind you, Corinthians, of, of my way of life, Paul's way of life, which is actually in Christ. And so as you trace it backwards, right, there's this imitation, 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 imitation that's being reproduced and multiplied to the church that ultimately is meant to resemble Jesus and what he believed and how he lived. This is tremendously important and so oftentimes missed in today's church. My life is meant to imitate Jesus. And so what he's going to do in this text in chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, is he's going to talk about these three things and how we get to be imitators. He's going to talk about us walking in love. He's going to talk about us walking in light. And he's going to talk about us walking in wisdom and how these all resemble Jesus collectively uh, together, okay? All right, so chapter 5, verse 2. Here's where he starts, right? He starts with Jesus. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So three things that happen in here, right? We're called to walk in love, right? As Jesus loved us, right? That's important. So as Jesus loved us, how did he love us? He gave himself up for us. So there's the sacrificial living. Uh, living. And the result is that there's this, this beautiful aroma, this fragrant offering that goes up to God. So when we think about love, we begin to just remember, and Paul doesn't unpack this very much because this is, a, in some sense, it's in some sense cliche, but in some sense, it's just, it should be naturally known to the Christian church that when we talk about love, we're talking about sacrifice. It's sacrificial living is what love is all about in scripture. And so he's just reminding us, go back to it. When you think about love, to love is to sacrifice, okay? Just get that, get that into your brain. To love is to sacrifice. And what Paul then is gonna do is he's actually gonna contrast this idea of sacrificial love with something very different that the Ephesians are wrestling with. And it's not love, but it's lust. And it's so easy to confuse in our worlds the difference between love and lust. That's what he's going to do, okay? So check this out uh, in verse 3. This is like the start, by the way, the start of the right hook, okay? He comes in and he says, uh, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So he says, but sexual immorality, all impurity, all that stuff, right, that should have no place. Like they enter, like when people enter into the Christian church in Ephesus, they shouldn't even be able to name that. It's kind of what he's saying. Now, here's what's hard, because here at church, we, we, like, we use this language, the idea of struggle well. Struggle well means that every single person in this room has struggles. We do right? There's every single person in this room has struggles, right? In varying degrees, but we all have struggles. Uh, very few people struggle well. And to struggle well simply means that at any given point in my life, I need to be able to point myself to Jesus or other people to Jesus, because God's grace is unconditional and his love is unconditional. So, but when you, when you read Paul's statement, it, it feels like it's saying two things. It's almost saying like, like struggle well, this idea of struggle uh, can't be a real thing, right? Like you can't struggle. This should not be even be named among you. So what does he mean? Here's what, here's what I think he means. As you, as you process through this, um, you have to remember who Paul is talking to, okay? Because Paul is talking to a people who we just came out of last chapter when we were talking about sex, and what does he say? He says, they lived a life of freedom with no boundaries. The only rule in life is that there is no rules. <laughs> you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, 
with whoever you want, however you want. And that includes sex, that includes all things that are sexually immoral, all of those types of things, right? And so this is the type of people that he's talking to. And you have to remember, too, that the people of Ephesus, with this, under this Greek philosophy, right, they would have had this idea that, that when I am enlightened in my mind, when my brain, when my understanding and my philosophy is true, when I understand the way that I interact with and connect to the world, I can now do whatever I want with my body. Right? And that's the philosophy that these people are living in. And by the way, this is their entire lifestyle, right? Everything that they can do. And, and here's what's crazy about this is that they would use sex even for the culmination of worship, right? And so you talk about religious worship and whatnot. This is very natural. They just would engage in, in intercourse, right, with, with a variety of different people. And it was the culmination of these religious experiences. And what Paul is helping us understand, right, and what might seem more natural to us, but he's helping them understand because that's the only way of life that they have ever known, it's the only way of life that they've ever known, and he's helping them understand that when you do that, you think that you're worshiping God or gods, but in reality, you're just worshiping yourself because this is your pattern, because it's not about sacrificial love. It's about what? Selfish love. It's all about me and what I want in life, right? And so what Paul is trying to help us understand. It's ultimately a question about worship. And so um, I want to try to talk about this love versus uh, lust in a, in a bit maybe unconventional uh, way. Um, gee, if, if we only had a book in the Bible that was all about love, we do. Well, t- we have two. We have one, this collection of all 66 books, which is ultimately a story about love right? God's love. Uh, but we also have this other book. It's called The Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. If it's been a while since you've read it, maybe go back and read it. Just prepare yourself. It's weird. <laughs> okay? It has some, has some strange things in it. And, uh, and they talk about love and romance in ways that uh, in 21st century Christianity we don't. <laughs> okay? So, but here's the reality is that when you think about love and you think about all that's associated with it, like when, it's, when we're talking about the creation design and who God is and the way that he created the world, it would make sense that there is an entire book in the Bible devoted to love because in good creation, it is good, right? Love is good in all forms that go with it, the physical intimacy, uh, etc. So it's proper. It has a place in the Bible. But as we wrestle through this for a second, because there's, some, there's something I want you to, to wrestle with here. So the, the, the traditional view, um, the traditional view of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, is that there are two authors. One is this guy named Solomon. You've probably heard of him. He's a, uh, you know, like the third New Testament, Old Testament king, right? So you've got Saul, then David, and then Solomon. Uh, and he's the f- wisest man on the earth and ends up being the most wealthy, right? And uh, he falls in love with this woman uh, who we might call the maiden or uh, she's a Shulamite woman. So you have Solomon and the Shulamite. And he is in love with this, this woman and he wants to marry her. And so he is wooing her with this language. And so you can read the book just from this traditional two, two-person stance. And that would make sense. It does make sense. Um, but here's my question. When you think about Solomon's story, let's just remind ourselves here for a second. Solomon had how many wives? Seven? Nope, that's not right. Seventy? Nope, that's not right. Seven (laughs) hundred. Seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. So when it comes to sexual morality, 
Yeah, if, you, if he wanted to sleep with somebody new, he could do that for over three years. That's pretty crazy. So here's my question. And I'm not knocking Solomon here, but here's my, here's my thought. Is, is why would God choose to use Solomon, who, by the way, at the end of his, his life, in 1 in Kings 11, it tells us that because of all of his relationships that, that have actually led him away from the Lord. And so we kind of left with this, like, where is Solomon at? Like, what kind of position is he in? Is he good? Is he bad? What's going on? Right? So why, does God, why would God use this guy to write this epitome book on love? So here's, an, here's another option, is it's a little bit less traditional. This is something I learned in seminary, but I just think it's fascinating, is that there's maybe a third author in this book, right? You see, Solomon is wooing this, this woman, and there's this other guy who is wooing this woman. And uh, this is a man who is probably from her hometown that she was actually betrothed to marry. But Solomon, in his lust, enters in. He finds whatever pretty woman he wants, and he can make her a concubine, right? And he can just bring her into his household. And so here's this guy who loves this woman, who loves this man. And so then the, the, the book of Song of Solomon is really this, this idea um, that to love in its pure form, the way that God has designed it. This is a celebration of love right here and the way that it's designed because it will not be bought by royal enticements. But Solomon keeps entering in. And the way that Solomon talks about love is like he talks about gold and, 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 and buildings and chariots. Whereas this guy's talking about hills and birds and trees. And so you have this unnatural love versus natural love. And so while it's a celebration of love, it's also an indictment against lust. Because those two things are oftentimes easily confused in our life and in our world and our culture. Because if we were to take a giant step forward from their time into our time in this space, does life look differently? No, it's the same, right? It's so easy to confuse love and lust, right? Like the appeal of sex is a real thing. You can barely watch a show without it. I mean, this is the reality of the world we live in. And it's moving even from not just opposite gender, but like same gender, right? It's becoming a new normal. Um, I was reading this week about um, a at a college dorm, there was this massive uh, poster that in the middle it had these, the giant letters S-E-X, Okay? And then underneath it, in small print, it said, now that we have your attention, join the rowing team. And this is the world that we live in, because this is the appeal of sex, right? We confuse love with lust, and we long for those things. That's the sinful nature uh, inside of us, right? And we think that we're loving others. We think that we're practicing love when really we're practicing lust, and we end up loving ourselves, and that's the way that this works. That's the way pornography works. That's the way sexual immorality works. And what does he say in verse 5? He goes on, right? He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And you go, wow, this is like that right hook keeps getting closer and closer. This is, this is a really powerful statement. It's a very powerful statement from Paul. What is he talking about? Because it sounds like he's saying that by grace you are saved through faith, back in chapter 2, right? But there's a line. And if you continue in this sin, who knows where that line is? But if you cross that line, I'm sorry. 
And I believe that that, that, that functions in, intrinsically against the unconditional nature of God's love. And I believe, and I know there are people in this room who believe otherwise, and that's okay. We can, we can talk about this, but I don't think a person can lose their salvation. You go back to chapter one, and Paul says that you've been given the Holy Spirit who's the seal. He sealed us for our inheritance. He's the guarantee of this inheritance that we have later on in life. And so really then, what he's saying is he's talking to this group of people, right? Because you've got to remember, the Ephesians, these people who live in Ephesus, the only life they've ever known is a life of freedom with no boundaries. That's the only life they've ever known. And what Paul is doing is he's adding with emphasis. Can, he goes, like, I know that you're going to struggle with this, and it's going to be a process, but can I just say with emphasis, this has no place among you? Because this is not the way that we are designed. There's no place for this, and you shouldn't even be named among you, right? And he says, guys, I know that this life, this former life, this life of darkness is tempting. It's, it's, it's powerfully, and there's, there's wooing in this. So what does he say in verse 6? He says, let no one deceive you. Because right, those people are going to be right there, and those, all those friends from your former life are going to be like, hey, come on, Seth, come do this. Just five minutes. That's good. Just spend five minutes with us. One drink. That's it. You know, one whatever, you know, it's not a big deal. Just come sit with us. Come do this, right? And he says, do not let them deceive you. Those words are empty. They hold nothing. They're vanity. This is the life. This is the vanity. This is all that they know. And you know differently. And he says, this, again, it's powerful. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's powerful, it's dangerous, the, the immorality of the world that we can so easily and quickly be drawn to, because our world is really no different than theirs, if we're honest, right? If we're honest, this is the way that it is, right? And so what does he say uh, in verse 7? This is kind of his transition. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Is he saying here, don't engage in the world? Is he saying, don't engage with non-Christians? Don't engage with people who don't know Jesus? Is that what he's saying? No, right? Because then you remove Luke uh, 9 and Luke, Luke 10, where Jesus pairs people up and he sends them out. Uh, then you black highlighter your way through Matthew 28, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? To be a disciple, to be a disciple maker of Jesus is to engage the world with people who don't know Jesus. That's part of what, it's part of the every believer responsibility, every single one of us. That's part of our responsibility. It's not what he's saying here. When he uses the word partner, the word partner means like someone who partakes with. And so it's these people who are wooing us with these words that would say, hey, come sit at the table. So here's the table. And I enter in and I sit down at the table. And it's over time as I begin to partake with and do the things that they're doing. And I begin to practice what they're practicing. And in so doing, what I do is I get engrossed in it. And it has the danger of the story, kind of like a, maybe like, a, like an undercover cop who enters in to infiltrate, you know, the people, right? And he comes in with this agenda, and it's all good and well. He gets his seat at the table, and we're like, ha little do you know, I'm undercover. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get this. And then like, hey, take these drugs so you can prove that you're on my team. It's a dangerous thing because we can start taking and taking and taking before we know it we're in over our heads right it says do not partake it doesn't say don't engage with them we need to engage but don't partake don't become partners 
with that type of lifestyle. That's the thing. And he says, that's an area of darkness. You need to walk in light, okay? So he moves on to this idea of light in verse eight. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the contrast to light here is darkness, right? The contrast to love is lust. The contrast to light is darkness. And I love that he says, he's, he's talking about the fruit of the light. He says it's found in everything that's good and right and true, right? There's something innate in the human being, in the, in the human conscience, the human soul, that when you do something good, you know that was good, right? You don't need to unpack that. You know, that's just that's part of the reality. And when you do something wrong, you go, woo, that was wrong. Right? I know this. And what Paul is encouraging, he's saying, man, like, you guys know what is good. You know uh, what is right, right? So what does he say? He continues in verse 11. He says, you know what's good, but guess what? Verse 11, take no part. Again, bold language. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, right? There's contrast here because there's the fruit of light, but there's the unfruit of darkness. And that's the lie of the darkness, isn't it? That we can do and do and do and we can gain all the fruit. And the reality is, is that there's no fruit. It's the vanity. This is the lifestyle of those apart from Christ, right? The unfruitful works of darkness. Don't partake in those things, but instead expose them, right? Instead, I want you to expose them. It's so easy to go back to the old way of life. That's what we are patterned to do. That's what every one of us is patterned to do. And so for those of us who become Christians, right, what happens is that we, in the moment of this conversion, as we are transformed by grace through faith, we are made uh, a new creation, right? There's this new sense of right and wrong. And so when I'm living life, I step and I go, ooh, that was right. Or I step and I go, ooh, that was wrong, right? Do you see, do you see this? This is the way that this happens. But it's one thing for a Christian to, to know what is right and wrong and to step into this and go, ooh, that was wrong, but who cares? I'm thankful for the grace that I have in Jesus. I'm thankful for that, but I'm going to live in the open, in the public, and just do life the way that I want to. That rarely happens. Why? Because we know, we know that it's wrong, and the power of the Holy Spirit and his conviction is all very, very important, right? And we know that's hard to ignore. So it's very, it's very seldom that you see this. So instead, what we do is that we take, these, we take these things from the public sphere, and we bring them into the dark sphere, and we bring them behind the curtain, and we begin to practice these things in darkness. And it's like last week, we, wanna, we want the power and all the, the, the goodness or what we think is goodness from our old self. And then we put the new self on top and we get the best of both worlds because we get the grace of Jesus while at the same time, the sins and the pleasures of the world right? And so he's saying, right, it's like, this is, this is not okay. You can do it, but do it in secret. Yesterday, we, uh, we hosted, Nikki hosted, I guess I should say, um, a baby shower for Heidi and Jared uh, with baby Cyrus. And so um, what you guys don't know is that we cleaned the house really, 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 really well. Um, I did some of it. Uh, she did probably the bulk of it. So I want to give her the credit. 
um, but maybe steal just a tiny bit for myself. But what happened was that as we're cleaning the house, right, we get all this stuff and we start moving it and cleaning. And so like the, all of the vacuum, like all the vacuuming is done. That has been a while. And we have a husky. So uh, it's been a while since we've done that. So all the carpet, all the stairs, the wood was clean, the countertops were cleaned, right? And it was, it was great. It was super awesome. And then I went upstairs uh, to change uh, for later that day. And I remembered that our bedroom had become the drop zone. <laughs> because it's a stack of papers, cess books, you know, clothes, random empty can of refried beans. Where'd that come from? Like, I don't even know, you know, like, like this just became this drop zone of space. And this is natural for us to want to live in secrecy. We can, we can pretend. This is, what, this is what Jesus talks about even with the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, right? Is that you look good on the outside, but there's this space that you hold for yourself, this dark room that we do whatever it is that we want in the darkness of that space, right? We live in secrecy. So what does he say in verse 12? As he, as he goes, he continues this right hook, and he goes, guys, this is a big deal. Here's why. Because it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. You see, as Paul is standing outside of that room, he goes, I know it's in that room. It's shameful to be on the outside and even to talk about what's going on in that room. And it's another thing to be living in it without repentance, without any of that, right? It's, this is very important. Paul's, Paul's vision here for the purity of the gospel is extraordinary, but it's very, very powerful, and it's very, very dangerous. And I just want us to be really clear as we think through this. There's nothing in this room that is, that is surprising God right now. I think, we, I think we probably know that, but you, we all need to hear it, right? Like he's, God's not like, Seth, you struggle with what? You struggle with what? When do you struggle? How many times? You, how many times last week did you do that? Are you are you serious? Like that's uh, there's nothing that surprises us, right? God's grace is unconditional. It covers every single piece. There's no person or sin that is beyond the grace of God. And so I want us to know that, right? That's incredibly true. But what Paul is stating here with emphasis is that, guys, what's happening in this room is in direct opposition to the gospel. This is hindering your life. Because you're living in the secrecy of sin. It's a hindrance. It's not good. It's, it's this idea of selfish love versus sacrificial love. And it's ultimately idolatry and worship. And so what does he do? What does he say in verse 13? He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Okay? So, so as I think through this, like you pull this out of your pocket. This has been in the darkness, right? It's been in, in my back pocket. It's been in the darkness. But when I pull it out, it's now exposed to the light. When it's exposed to the light, does it mean that it's not sinful? No. It's incredibly, it's deeply sinful. It's still sinful, right? But by exposing it to light, now it has less power because I know what it is. I know where it is. And we can talk about it and we can converse about it. And here's what's great about this, is that the longer that this has exposed, um, is exposed to gospel light, the more that the Holy Spirit can work this out of my life and can make this a thing of my past. And it can be joined to the gospel story of what's happening in my life right now, right? 
It comes out of the darkness and into light. And so what does he do? He, he quotes this beautiful song, this first century song, probably a, a contemporary hymn or a contemporary song of some, port, some, some type. And he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's this beautiful portrait. And I want to wrestle just really quick. Because it's for those people who live in the sweet spot of their spiritual identity, right? This is who I was. This is who I was before Jesus. This is who I am now in light of Jesus. But there's also this is, this is who I will be when I get that full new body, right? And this is a powerful place to be because right in the center, this is the sweet spot, isn't it? This is the sweet spot. But it's not just my spiritual identity that Paul is talking about because he's urging us to live a life manner worthy of the gospel. So what does he do? He attaches also this idea, cave, table, road. My time with God, my time with others, and my time with people who don't know Jesus. And again, there's a sweet spot here. When I'm living in these, all three of these, there's the sweet spot. And so what I want you to pretend, or I want you to think about for a second is if you take these, if you were to pull them off the screen, overlap them together. I want you to think about the possibility of the light that would happen as you enter into a room, right? And we see that this is actually connected to this pure and sacrificial form of love. That's how beautiful all this, it works together. But here's the thing about light and darkness. It's not like paint. It's not black and it's not white. So when black and white mix, what do you get? Gray. When light and dark mix, what happens? Light consumes, right? right? We need to be able to walk in this light. He calls us as Christians then to walk in wisdom. And check this out, verse 15. He says, look carefully then at how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully means this idea of putting your life under a microscope, putting how you live, how you walk, how you do the holistic manner of your living, right? Put it under a microscope and, and examine carefully how you're living wife, life. And don't do it as, as, as unwise, but actually do it as wise. What does that mean? He says, making the best use of time. If you want to like practice this and just kind of like wrestle with this in a different way, go home, take a rag and dump it in a bucket of water, pull it out and just let it drip. And then what you're going to do is you're just going to start to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze all the way down until you've got every single last drop out of that cloth. Because that's the imagery here. He says, I want you to use your time and get every drop out of that thing possible. And I want you to do it. I want you to buy back time. I want you to redeem time so that you can actually bring redemption into these moments where you can actually be this gospel light in the world uh, that, we, that we live in, right? This is so powerful. It's so uh, incredible, right? And he says there's this sense of urgency. Remember, right? Because the days are evil. The days are evil. Every day that goes by brings us closer to the end. And he says, I want you to use every opportunity you can for the kingdom. Make the best use of time, right? And here's what he says. He says in verse um, 17, he says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, last thing. 
as we come back here, we say, what is the will of the Lord? Because I think so, for so many Christians, we get caught up in this and we miss what's really happening. Because when we hear will of the Lord, what we think is God's ultimate direction for my life. What is God's specific direction for my life? And that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that at the center, he's talking about this gospel purpose. This is the will of God. From the beginning of Ephesians to the end of Ephesians, this will, understanding the will of God is about God sending his son so that people would come to Christ, be transformed in the likeness of Christ, and that those people would help other people come to know Christ. That's the will of God. And he says, I want you to understand that, right? And outside of that, there's what we might call the general will of God, right? And in this is be kind, be tenderhearted, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, right? Like push comes to shove, like make sure you're living in this too. But outside over here is even this idea then of the specific will. And we so oftentimes long, we get stuck in this. We think about the will of God and we go, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? When in reality, sometimes he doesn't give that. Not all the time does he give this, but he always has this. And sometimes we can be so focused on this that we miss this. And sometimes we miss this, which means that we miss this. And at the core of God's will, in this text at least, is this, the gospel message. And it makes me think, um, well, actually, I want to show how all these then are connected, right? You see how this keeps going back? This goes back to this light, which goes back to this sacrificial love. And it makes me think of, of uh, James 4 when he says this. <clears throat> he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's like a hot cup of coffee. And you, as you see that little vapor come up, you're like, oh, that's so, oh, it's gone. That's your life. That's what he says. That's your life. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, so for many of us, we get so stuck in this, in this, what is God's will for my life, that we miss the opportunities that are being presented to us on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. And he says, if you know what you ought to do, and you don't do it, it's sin. It's where the right hook finishes. It's how he finishes at the end in this passage, right? But then he ends with something positive. Here's what he says. Verse 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead, here's what I want. Be filled with the Spirit. Because that's the inflow. When you are filled with the Spirit, guess what? Guess what the overflow is going to be? You're going to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're going to singing and making melody to the Lord with all of your heart. Like, how great is that? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? And so worship, the more that we are consumed by worship, whether it's psalms or hymns or contemporary music, the whole encompassing, the more consumed that we are with that, the harder time those words are going to have getting into our life. I want to invite the worship team uh, to come on up. 
And as we're going to sing, sing this one final song, I want to ask these questions, though, just as a challenge to us as we, as we wrap up. As we talk about being imitators, right? And I'm thinking, going back to those Eden stories, we are designed, we are designed to, to fall in love with Jesus and for our lives to ultimately pattern and reflect our creator, right? Be imitators. And so this idea of walking in love, here's my question. Are you confusing love and lust? Is there anything in your life right now where you're confusing those two things, and what is it? When you walk in light, this whole thing, is there anything in your life that actually needs to be brought into light? Maybe there's something that's been in your darkness for a week. Maybe it's been in the darkness for a year. Maybe it's been 10 years, but you do not want to bring it out. What needs to be brought to the light? And walking in wisdom, are you making the best use of your time for the kingdom? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we wrap up our time this morning, as we sing a song, I was thinking about this yesterday, this morning, last night and this morning, how very little maybe I sometimes pray and just say, God, would you fill me with the Spirit? Because it's that inflow when I'm filled with the Spirit as he enters in and fills every crevice and cavity as I, as, even, as I open up the doors to those dark rooms that I've wanted to keep secret, as we enter those, open those, and as the light floods into those spaces, that the Spirit would remind us, hey, this is how much God loves you, right? There's nothing that is beyond saving. There's nothing out there that surprises God, but that I also pray that it would be the Spirit who woos us and draws us into Christ-likeness, that would be a people excited, ecstatic, and hungry hungry to look more and more like Jesus with every single day. Lord, may we be imitators of you. May we walk in love. May we walk in light. And may we walk in wisdom. Amen.